Hi, welcome to the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member here at Transit Matters. I'm Jim Aloisi, co-host, also a board member at Transit Matters. And I'm Scott Hamway. I'm MassDOT's manager of long-range planning. Scott's joining us today um, from MassDOT because we wanted to talk about uh, the Silver Line Gateway Project and uh, Focus 40, which is a project um, that deals with long-range planning. Um, And we will, of course, deal with that uh, in due time. But starting off, the reason why I first thought to ask Scott to come and speak with us is because... uh, of the Silver Line Gateway uh, extension of the Silver Line that I feel like is probably the, the, the least uh, remembered uh, transit expansion project that's happening right now in the greater Boston area. It, I hope that's because it's under budget and ahead of schedule, um, but I think it's probably more to do with just the dollars involved. You know, it gets overshadowed by the Green Line uh, extension. But I guess to start out, Scott, what where are we with the Silver Line Gateway at this point? And maybe we could begin by describing to people exactly what that service will be like. Sure, yeah. So the Silver Line uh, Gateway, for those who aren't familiar, will be an entirely new branch of the Silver Line service that we run in the Seaport District today through the Transitway Tunnel. Uh, it'll it'll use the Transitway. It'll go through the Williams Tunnel uh, to the airport. Uh, but unlike the existing service, which stops at the airport terminals, this, um, you know, this service will bypass the terminals, go directly to Airport Station, where it'll provide direct access to the East Boston residential community as well as uh, North Shore commuters coming down the blue line. It will then continue um, in um, somewhat in mixed traffic over into Chelsea where it will enter a former uh, railroad corridor for uh, where we were currently constructing a one mile long dedicated busway uh, that'll have four BRT stations on it uh, with a new Chelsea commuter rail station at the terminus. So it'll provide a, a one-seat ride for residents of Chelsea and East Boston into the Seaport District. Uh, it'll also make it easier for North Shore commuters on the commuter rail or the Blue Line to be able to get into the Seaport with one transfer. For listeners who may need to be demystified of acronyms, you've said this that in the Chelsea area it will run on a BRT alignment. So that means bus rapid transit. Tell us a little bit about what that will be like. Sure. So bus rapid transit is a a concept uh, where you you try to bring in all the elements of of, that we typically associate with rail rapid transit and do it with rubber tired uh, bus vehicles. Um, I think that we're hesitant to throw the term around uh, here locally because some of our um, while higher higher order bus services that we do have in the Boston area sort of fall shy of the bus rapid transit standard that you see uh, in places like Latin America or Asia where it's really been implemented at a, at a high level. Uh, we do believe that the, the portion of the Silver Line Gateway that's going to be in Chelsea uh, is, is pretty high level bus rapid transit. It will have its own traffic-free right-of-way. The stations will feel um, like like real transit stations and not bus stops that will be transit signal priorities. So uh, we're hoping to create a pretty good, ex- great experience for folks over in Chelsea. And I just, I would, I would just note too uh, to Josh's intro talking about, you know, maybe why this has been under the radar a little bit. I think all the things you, you suggested are, are true. I think um, the other two other big differences about this project, one is, you know, most of the expansion projects that we've advanced or haven't yet advanced have been around for 20, 30, 50 years. This is a project that was a relatively quick um, initiative, really, that started as recently as when Secretary uh, Aloisi was was in office. Um, also, I think it's in a part of town that's maybe not as high visibility as, as Somerville or Boston, at least for some of the circles that we all operate in, and talk in. Well, I certainly think it's exciting that we can... Um, think up and begin implementing on a relatively quick um, timetable a project, especially when it reaches a part of the community uh, that was very underserved, you know, formerly by transit. So I think that's pretty exciting. Where are we as far as uh, when this project will come online? 
Um, so right now we are on target to have a revenue service or, or to start actually serving customers uh, in the spring of 2018. So just a little bit less than a year from now, we anticipate um, with, when the spring rating or when we, when we change schedules for, for all of our bus routes in the spring, which will happen in late March, early April 18, uh, we'll start introducing service in Chelsea. Um, one element of the project that's being done as part of a second phase is that commuter rail station. Uh, we have to, in order to create an accessible ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act compliant commuter rail station, we need to actually move it from its current location, which is somewhat near Bellingham Square, uh, over to Everett Avenue, which is where a lot of the new development in Chelsea is is happening. So that'll that will lag uh, by close to two years. That it, that piece of how it. far this, away is that movement? Uh, it's about a half a mile. Okay. Of a move, yeah. So will this be branded as the Silver Line 6 or something else? I, I believe right now we're calling it Silver Line 3, which would Silver replace, three. Which would replace uh, city an, earlier, yeah, an earlier City Point variation of the Transway. Tell us a little bit about equipment. Are you going to be, not you personally, but is the T going to be doing a new procurement for new bus equipment? Are you going to be using existing buses? How's that going to work? Uh, so we'll be using the existing uh, fleet of dual-mode articulated buses, which is the, the only bus that the MBTA owns right now that we can operate in the transitway tunnel in South Boston. Uh, that, that fleet uh, is in the process of being uh, going through what we call a midlife overhaul. So we're basically rebuilding the buses so that we can get another eight to ten years out of them. Those are the buses um, in Maine? Those are the buses that are being re rebuilt in, in Maine. And, mm -hmm. and although there were some, some hiccups, I think, in that contract that delayed things, uh, we are uh, on target. Uh, so right now, it, we've, we, we have a high, high degree of confidence that uh, the schedule of that overhaul will not delay the start of service for this, for this service. But yeah, we, would not, we wouldn't be able to operate the new Chelsea service until that overhaul is complete. Okay, so no one on an existing Silver Line 1 or 2 is going to have fewer bus available. There'll just be additional buses brought on. That is correct. Yeah, they'll, they'll be, uh, they'll, and they'll be, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully what this project will do will allow some people who are today taking the Blue Line all the way into downtown Boston or taking the 111 bus from Chelsea all the way to downtown Boston and making their way over to South Station to access the Silver Line to get into the seaport. Hopefully... More of those people will be on this new service coming in. What today is sort of the off-peak or the reverse commute direction on the on the transit way, uh, and taking some pressure off of uh, folks that are trying to come in from South Station. If we're if we're using the same, so so will there be the same number of buses in service once the gateway is comes online in the year? Uh, yeah. So the service the service that we operate today in the transit way that that service level will remain unchanged. Uh, the the difference will be we believe we'll be making much better use of our sort of inbound Silverline trips in the AM peak. So trips that are largely empty today coming towards South Station from the Seaport District. I guess what I'm trying to say is so right now we're running scheduled service of I think 32 buses per hour through the tunnel in in the Seaport. So if the route is longer, would you still be able to run 32 buses per hour, or does that mean that service will go from below two minutes at the peak per a bus every two minutes to maybe more than two minutes per no, bus? No, because because although we have 32 buses, not well, you're you're talking about the number of trips per hour. We also have 32 buses in that fleet. Uh, today, we we never operate. I don't believe more than 19 at the peak because of the reliability issues we've had with that fleet. It's the only, you know, we, 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 we've hesitated to schedule more aggressively because of reliability concerns we've had with, with that fleet, and we can't just swap in another bus to provide the service. So uh, once the overhauls are done, we're going to be able to operate, I, I believe it's at 25, 26, a much more typical spare ratio for the, for the fleet than we are today. Um, but that, 
excess will be used to provide this longer route to, to Chelsea and maintain the current uh, service. So level. the current schedule would be that's maintained. Right. Okay, that's, right. that's great. With the additional Silver Line service at Chelsea, I'm wondering whether any, you've heard anybody seriously start to think about the, the need for a dedicated uh, high-occupancy vehicle tunnel in addition to the existing harbor tunnels. Because, as we all know, um, the Silver Line 1 and the Silver Line 3 now, just like everyone else, will be sort of in the Ted Williams Tunnel vying for the same space as everything else. So I'm wondering, is there any discussion or thought in the future about the need for a dedicated tunnel for high-occupancy vehicles? I think that, you know, where we are uh, right now is uh, there, and there's certainly a lot of interest in making sure we maintain access to, to Logan, and, and certainly as we open this new service that, that folks are able to use it and get into the seaport uh, quickly. I think uh, rather than uh, thinking about uh, the construction of an entirely new uh, high occupancy vehicle tunnel, I think, you know, one of the things we can maybe start to think about is, is uh, what opportunities the implementation of all electronic tolling uh, might present to help mm -hmm. us you know, manage demand, or maybe, uh, maybe do some do some things differently than we have. But not nothing that's really no sort of advanced conversations at this point. It's it's certainly a an economic center of interest for the Focus Forty process. The Logan area is one of those, you know, sort of key, um, you know, key uh, commercial centers that are outside of the traditional hub of the transit network that we very much uh, want to focus on and highlight as part of Focus Forty. Is there any, has there been any, because the, the, the vehicles and the reliability of the vehicles and the mid-life the mid um, life overhaul was certainly a big hiccup, as you mentioned, has there been any progress on next-generation procurement? Uh, yeah, so, so right now, as part of a, a bus procurement that's happening now, the, the T is going to be getting a couple sort of sample buses that they can use that are going to be testing different technologies that should allow us to operate in that tunnel uh, safely to try to understand what the next what the next generation vehicle on the Silver Line wants to be. Um, it's certainly not going to be the same vehicle that we have today. Um, you know, battery-powered hybrids are, you know, advancing to the point that there's a, a there's a pretty high level of confidence that, you know, eight years out from now when we'd probably be, need to retire the existing fleet, uh, that there'd be a vehicle that we could operate that would be able to make that sort of, I think it's 2.2-mile round-trip loop through the transitway tunnel uh, in what's called the hush mode, where it's not emitting, um, so that's 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 the expectation, and that'll be that'll be hopefully more of an off-the-shelf vehicle that a lot more systems nationally would be interested in in buying. Whereas the the, the vehicle that we use in the system today is really a one-off that the the T was the primary market for. I guess we've learned our lesson on on one-offs uh, yeah. <laughs> a few times now, um, and just. Clarification point: the the portion that will be in Chelsea is that going to be running under electric catenary wire? It will not. Okay. No. So I guess one of the other questions uh, gets down to a lot of operational issues. I know that um, I think we had spoken a few years ago, and you had mentioned, or there had been discussion about um, the bridge that goes up and down. Um, I'm forgetting the, the name of that the bridge. Chelsea Street Bridge. Chelsea yeah. Street Bridge. Um, you know, there's that. There's issues that Jim mentioned with the Williams Tunnel, um, but also there's the state police ramp that if, if only we could get further up in the queue, then that would help with issues uh, with getting into the tunnel as well as the loop-de-loops the Silver Line does in the seaport. Um, this wouldn't wouldn't be a factor for the, the Silver Line Gateway buses, but for the other Silver Line buses, the issues of running in mixed traffic around the airport terminals, where sometimes there's big issues with delays going from the terminals. Um, operational issues like that, do you have any insight on what's being being planned for those kind of issues? 
Right. So one of the, the big one that you mentioned is the Chelsea Street Bridge. That's a that's a lift bridge that's probably maybe seven or eight years old. Uh, yeah, now. we we broke ground on that when I was secretary. Okay, so right. So, so maybe five years. Yeah. Maybe five years since yeah. it opened. Um, so that's a bridge that uh, it's a lift bridge when it when it opens um, and the Coast Guard has required uh, MassDOT to open that to the full open position whenever a ship needs to pass under it. So that process can take, you know, upwards of 10 minutes, 12, 13 minutes to do that. Um, if you have a couple different vessels that are passing at the same time or a particularly large one or if the ship captain calls a little bit earlier, then, then he's necessarily going to get there. Um, you can have uh, openings that are that are quite a bit longer, you know, up to 20 minutes uh, long. So that's uh, clearly an issue that, you know, isn't an, isn't a completely new one. You know, about a half mile down river, you have the McArdle Bridge, which is another drawbridge that impacts the 116 and 117 buses, which are high ridership. And my understanding buses. is, according to maritime law, the the ship traffic takes precedent over bridge traffic. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think it all depends on on the tides. Correct. I mean, they they generally come in when the tides are favorable. And they yeah, and I think the the larger vessels are not coming in at, at low tide. I, right. I think that you know, so what we've what we've been working with our um, consultant to do is basically review historical bridge logs um, from the the past couple years to understand um, are there any patterns to when related to the tides in terms of when ships are coming in are there um, can we draw conclusions about how long an opening is going to be based on the type of vessel that, that came through um, and then with with the goal being to develop a decision support tool that they're they're working on developing for for bus operations that will allow them uh, when we get that early notification that the bridge is about to open, we can quickly decide based on where our fleet is in relation to the bridge. You know, do we? Does it make sense to take a detour route, which is going to be quite circuitous and out of the way? Does it make sense to just hold in line and wait for the bridge to open and close? Or in some cases, do we want to short-turn vehicles like we do with some other services, like sometimes the, you know, the Green Line? Do we want to? have an outbound bus basically mm -hmm. discharge its passengers at airport station let them know there'll be another bus coming so that you can maintain the service level in the transit way um, we'll also want to then use that um, tool to also help create a public facing side of that so we can communicate to customers that are you know who maybe are you know the, the trip they're looking to make could maybe be made almost as well with a 111 into downtown you know letting making sure that we're communicating to customers on the platforms and and letting them know um when there's going to be a delay so they can they can make their own decisions and if it's not explicit to to uh, the listeners that the issue being if the bridge goes up and you're on the bus trying to get to the airport and there's a 10 minute delay that could be quite anxiety inducing yeah, and I think the the expectation is not that this will be a service that's primarily primarily designed for people trying to get to the airport for flights, um, but but certainly there are a lot of um, you know we could we could imagine a lot of employees using the service. The bridge is already a, a challenge for Logan Airport employees, including uh, mm -hmm. flight attendants and pilots who park at a garage facility that's right at the beginning of this busway in Chelsea, uh, where Logan employees park, and and that's been an issue for Massport. So we're working with them. Uh, we're working um, with our consultants to try to develop a tool to help us manage it. I mean, the trip will still be, you know, for the trip we're trying to serve, which is the Chelsea, East Boston to Seaport trip, this will still be by far the fastest way to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, we want to make sure for the times where it's going to be slower than, than normal, we want to just make sure we're letting everybody know and we're making the, the best operational decision we can. Definitely, it seems like communication is, as we've learned with um, the apps that we have now in real time, data for when, when trains and buses are coming. That helps a lot with uh, people being able to just relax and, and wait. Right. Um, so 
one of the, the things I wanted to ask about next is, is the urban ring, which is something we don't hear about a lot uh, in the last few years, maybe. Maybe it's still talked about a lot where you work, Scott. But um, the Silver Line Gateway is, you know, one of the links in the urban ring, the urban ring, you know, being a, a transit, a circumferential transit um, solution in Boston, um, whether that's portions of it being subway or bus or BRT or what, what, what have you. Um, after the Silver Line Gateway comes, and the reason I bring this up is because it's the project is still listed, Urban Ring is still listed on MassDOT's project website. <laughs> um, but but the Silver it Line takes ga- us a long time to get websites pulled <laughs> yeah. down. It's, right, it's almost as hard as getting a new one created. Um, so the Silver Line Gateway would be the completion of a, a large chunk of the urban or the Urban Ring, leaving if you count the the CT buses, uh, the crosstown buses, it would mean that there's a very small link remaining um, theoretically in the Urban Ring. And I'm just wondering uh, two things. Uh, one, are there um, what's coming next in the urban ring, if anything, <laughs> is is still uh, being thought of for future uh, extensions of, of completing that project? And secondly, uh, I had read an article, I want to say about a year ago in the Globe, talking about a Silver Line Gateway extension to Malden, uh, to Malden Center. And I couldn't find it when I was Googling around for it last night. But I don't know if you, do you know anything about that as well? Yeah, so I'll try to answer those questions. So the the urban ring uh, concept, or our our sort of active planning around that concept, was suspended back in 2010 by one of my other favorite ex secretaries, <laughs> Jeff Mullen, uh, Secretary Luisi's successor. And uh, and from and really from that point forward, you know, we've been we haven't been sort of actively thinking of it as this sort of like unified concept anymore. Uh, we we know that there's a lot of um, important origins and destinations within that corridor. I think my my sort of personal stance on the urban ring is. That that it was, it was really, um, you know, it was it was this idea that was trying to solve a bunch of different problems, right? So one problem was we have a lot of capacity constraints in the core of the network. Some of those trips don't need to come all the way into downtown Boston. So can we can we pull people off and, and improve cross-town connections so they don't have to do that? Um, there were also a lot of places, whether they be Union Square or Bellingham Square, places that uh, were existing nodes of activity but were poorly connected to the network. You could argue that Longwood was sort of fell into that category as well. So a way to pull those together. And then finally, there were areas like parts of portions of Everett or portions of North Point that, you know, or... Um, you know, portions of, of Chelsea that were underdeveloped former industrial areas that maybe transit was the missing piece. So I think, the, you know, in, in my, my opinion is that the urban ring, um, you know, was trying to solve all three of those issues. And, and I think depending on which adjacent pair of subway lines that we have in the system today, where you solve each of those problems might be in a different place. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking between the red line and the, and the green line quarter, you might solve each of those problems somewhere differently. Um, so the the notion of the sort of contiguous corridor to do all of that feels a little unwieldy to me. I think I think we need to be much more tactical and identify which of those problems are really the most critical ones to solve between each, you know, adjacent uh, radial rail line corridor, and then what are the possible tools we have to solve it. In some cases, it might be doing something of a very high order of transit priority on a corridor like Mass Ave, and that might really help pull a lot of those red to green transfers out of mm-hmm. Park Street. Um, in other cases, there may not be an on-street solution, right? So um, I think that's kind of the way we're approaching it. And then on Silver Line... Um, to Malden. Silver Line to Malden. So the, we, we conducted a study in Everett, uh, my team did, um, that wrapped up maybe six months ago. And that was sort of a holistic study looking at the transit needs of that, of that particular municipality. And um, we made a, a number of recommendations, some of which 
could be implemented in a today's sort of cost-constrained environment. Others, you know, were more longer-term solutions. Um, possible extensions of the Silver Line sort of into Everett proper. Um, Malden was probably identified because you need a place to kind of turn these services around, so it was a logical place to do that. But it was the, it was the notion of, in the future, when you had the vehicles to do this, does it make sense to take the Silver Line and sort of extend it into Everett Square or Glen, Glendale Square to provide more direct connections uh, for Everett folks? But I think what we like to point to from that study as an outcome is the, is the bus lane um, pilot that then became a permanent um, AM inbound bus lane. That was one of our, those were the recommendations we were really trying to work with the city to advance as quickly as we could were those on-street improvements where we knew the ridership was already there uh, and, and that, you know, the, the municipality taking a progressive step like that really kind of changes the game for the experience for our customers. Wondering if we could move on to a discussion of the Focus 40 initiative, which I think you've been leading now for the T. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what Focus 40 is, what it means, and what it's hoping to accomplish? Sure. Yeah. So Focus 40, uh, for those who are familiar with MBTA planning uh, history, is what we've branded this iteration of the Program for Mass Transportation, or the PMT. Um, thanks for reminding me to introduce my acronyms, uh, Secretary. And uh, so this is a this is a plan that's intended to sort of set the long-term capital priorities for the MBTA, and and is intended to sort of feed the the capital investment program, which is our financially constrained uh, capital plan. Uh, we believe that past iterations of the PMT have not done as good a job uh, feeding the CIP as, as as they might have liked to, and I think that's a lot of that is due to the fact that PMTs. You know, which are not required to be financially constrained. Past PMTs really didn't have much constraint at all, and I think there was a, uh, I think there were it was it was easy to just sort of take the sort of laundry list of expansion ideas that have been floating and kind of plug them in there, and the, then you the ended appetite up, is larger than the pocketbook, <laughs> right? right yeah. Yes. So I think you ended up with a situation where we would put out documents that external stakeholders and advocates could point to and say, no, this is still a real thing. It's still. It's still something they're planning for. And then internally, folks in operations or construction, our internal stakeholders would be like, well, this isn't a real planning guide because there's no way we could do it. They haven't made any choices. So we're, we're really uh, viewing this as a way for us to be much clearer about where, where we should be making investments, under what conditions, what are, the, you know, what, are the, um, what are the conditions on the ground in terms of demographics, density, um, you know, how does it relate to capacity constraints on our existing network? How does it help us solve some of those problems? How does it make sure that transit does not become the barrier to increased, um, in, in, you know, continued economic growth in some of these growth centers? So we're really um, looking to focus it on that. And and while while we'll also not be financially constrained because we don't have any, we 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 can't confidently predict how much funding we'll have over a 25-year period. Uh, we do want to we do want to create a roadmap that's much more achievable uh, and implementable and one that one that will both excite external stakeholders but also get we'll be able to get buy-in internally to deliver. So you're having a, you're having many public sessions and you're getting a lot of input I believe from citizens. How are you managing expectations cuz I assume those folks are giving you their aspirations, their wish lists. How do you take that input and then turn it into a concrete document that doesn't completely deflate their expectations. Right. Yeah, no, well, we hope we hope that's not going to happen. I think one thing we've done is although we have had three kind of higher profile public events that we thought were, you know, different than the typical mass.t event um, in terms of how we engage with folks uh, and and they were they were really great events to be a part of. We've also made sure and, and I think I, I started to learn this, Secretary Lacey working with you on the 28X 
uh, project is that you. Um, it was a lot of fun. Too. It, it was it was a lot of fun, and I, but I think when you just hold a public meeting, you get a certain subset of the population that comes out to that. Or if you're just soliciting ideas through some sort of online tool, you get a certain subset of the population. I think when you when you do public process that way. You do get a lot of those big, expensive expansion ideas are, are the ones that you tend to hear a lot more about. We um, we worked, um, uh, partnered with the Bar Foundation to hire uh, Caroline Vanessa as a, as a fellow to help us with our engagement strategies. And one thing that she was instrumental in doing was uh, working with a lot of the local nonprofits to develop a street team of folks that basically went out and spent 100 hours in the system talking to actual riders in the course of their commutes while they're waiting for the bus, waiting you know, riding the train, and we, and I think because we also, as, as you know, being the one getting the calls as a secretary, there are some rider groups we hear more from than others. Yes. You hear a little bit more from your commuter rail riders, even though they're maybe less than ten percent of the total ridership population. You hear less than the bus bus passengers, less than their share of the ridership. So we designed the street team outreach to go out and talk to customers in the percentage of. The, 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 in proportional to their representation of the ridership, and then even within that, we tried to geographically disperse it and and make sure we were hitting each each line or each side of the commuter rail network in proportion. So, and when and bottom line is when you do the outreach that way, you you tend to hear overwhelmingly that people just want to see the existing network we have, which we think is an incredible asset for the region. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what sometimes gets lost is just how much better the T would be if even the system we had today was modernized and functioned the way it could. It would, in terms of increased capacity, in terms of customer experience, reliability. Uh, and that's really what you hear disproportionately about when you're out talking to customers. So we, we designed the outreach to make sure we were um, get, you know, getting both sides of that. Sometimes uh, projects like this, I, I can be a little cynical about whether this is just a listening tour to make people feel heard uh, and then you'll go off and come up with some document. Um, what what is going to be the output of this of this project? Is this going to be um, lines on a map about where concrete's going to be poured in the future um, in the next thirty years, or is this more about values that will inform how we score um, what projects uh, get put into the five year uh, capital investment plan? Um, I guess that's two ends of a spectrum. But what do you think will come out of this? I, th I think it'll be a little of uh, a little of both, Josh. I think it, what it probably won't be will it will probably not attempt to be an exhaustive list of everything we think we're going to try to accomplish over a 25 year period. I think that's been another thing that long range plans try to do, and I think that's um, that's not where we're going to where we're going to try to go. I think it's going to be a mix of um, you know programs um, that we're going to want to try to advance. An example would be. Um, which Everett is just sort of the tip of the iceberg on is is uh, is looking at the dedicated uh, the quarters that we've identified as priorities for dedicated bus lanes and on street transit accommodation through Focus Forty we did an analysis with CTPS that identified um, those priority quarters where the ridership's high the congestion is high and the and the um, the opportunity the, the improvements from dedicated bus lanes would be significant so uh, programmatic treatments like that we'll be identifying those key corridors and key um, commercial centers where we where we know we need to come up with a menu of solutions to continue to support growth. I think there are going to be some um, strong policy statements in there about where and under what conditions we would look to expand this, expand the network, um, and invest in the network. And then, and then I think there will be some specific um, projects and specific investment ideas that we'll highlight as well to try to send clearer signals about where we're going next. Does the fiscal management and control board ultimately have to review and sign off on this before it's official? Yeah. So we'll be working. Um, 
closely with them and getting in front of them mm -hmm. a little bit more regularly. They had been focused, as you know, uh, over the past several months on the strategic plan that yep. they, that they mm -hmm. put together. Um, I think now that that mm -hmm. process is done, um, you know, the, the secretary, Secretary Pollock has really been, um, you know, very much pushing us and leading us on the Focus 40 effort. And I think that, um, but we're certainly getting to that point where we're going to start needing to get in front of them mm -hmm. um, as a group. Um, so that'll be happening. You mentioned 28X. I'm wondering during this Focus 40 process, what are you, what, what's the input you're getting and what's the current thinking about improving that corridor between Mattapan Station and Dudley? Where the 28 bus currently Where the 28 runs. bus and uh, other buses currently run. Right? Yeah, no, I mean, unfortunately, you hear a lot of uh, you hear a lot of calls for things that 28X would have solved. So you hear people mm -hmm. complain about their bus being stuck in traffic in Grove Hall or, or down in the square. Mm -hmm. um, you hear, you know, you hear concerns about what happens around Dudley Station where buses are, you know, I think we, we I think there's a hundred and, it's 130 miles a day that buses spend just, if, if you were if you were to change the circulation pattern around getting in and out of Dudley Station, which I think the city is about to sort of restart a process to look at doing that, oh. you could actually save 130 miles of bus travel a day just on that in that intersection. Not trivial. The, not <laughs> trivial. No, particularly. Right. Yeah, and and uh, so you hear about that. You hear obviously everywhere you go, you hear complaints about how the fare collection process on our surface transit slows the experience down. The good news there, of course, is that we're moving to a to a system that will allow us to open all doors uh, on the surface green line and on the bus network once our new fare collection system is in place. If you could take the Everett example and perhaps apply it on the 28 corridor, that would be really revolutionary, wouldn't it? I think it would. I think one one lesson, though, I would say that I, I took from 20... I took a lot of lessons from 28X. That was we, like all <laughs> we all did. We all did. I think that one lesson I, I would take from it is that um, 28X, even though compared to the way we have historically done expansion, which is these multi-billion dollar rail-based projects, 28X was a very modest and responsible way to do that. Um, I think that even 28X, though, by virtue of sort of wanting to be this high-level BRT, all the bells and whistles of BRT for the entirety of the four-and-a-half-mile route, I think that what one lesson from Everett is that if you sometimes just focus on... If you, if you sometimes just focus on those blocks or that mile or those two miles where the problem is at its worst and, and, and use the data and numbers to back up your case and work with your municipal partners to mm -hmm. get it done there, that's, that's almost kind of where we've been trying to focus lately is sort of like target those real hotspots where, you know, because with 28X there were some... There were some stretches of that route where clearly it's the right thing to do, right? right to yes. The There's other places where the bus was actually moving pretty quickly between stops because there was enough capacity. So I think one of the things that, that caught us up was we were trying to do everything on the whole corridor, and, and then you'd end up creating, instead of just having enemies in the place right. where <laughs> you have the strongest argument, we had them all up and down the corridor. Yes. So, yeah. to, to, to frame this uh, for those who aren't familiar, the 28X, uh, Secretary Aloisi, was a project that you tried to put together rather quickly to take advantage of um, federal funds that were made available uh, in 2008, I believe? 2009, at, with the uh, federal stimulus program that was adopted by Congress and signed by the president as a response to the Great Recession that we experienced. And, and because it was put together quickly and didn't go through 15 years of, of discussions, um, you ran into some issues with constituents along the route. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the important lessons to take away from that, from my perspective, is when, when you know... The idea that that was stimulus worked, but the idea that you had to do things very quickly meant um, that you couldn't engage in the kind of, of meaningful engagement process that you really do need to have when you're trying to do something big and different. 
and when you're trying to implement change. So we didn't have the luxury of that. And unfortunately, I think that was a large reason why uh, we could not uh, get this across the finish line. But as a concept, as an idea, I'm glad to hear that people are still interested in thinking about how to improve that bus. And there may be elements of the 28X that someday will be put into place. And w- with that experience kind of in the rearview mirror, um, Scott, I wanted to, to know, how did the Everett um, bus lane project, how did that take off so quickly and go from pilot to a um, permanent um, um, installation? Uh, you know, I think it was a, and although the city of Boston's a great partner, and we've had a lot of success on, even on this particular topic uh, with them of late, with the North Washington Street Bridge being a good example. Um, I think that Everett was kind of a case of taking advantage of the municipal fragmentation of our urban environment. You know, we're not sort of one city government. We're, we have the city of Boston kind of covering maybe half of the urban environment and then all of these other smaller municipalities. So when you're dealing with a municipality the size of Everett, um, you know, it's very easy to work directly with the mayor and his his lead, his lead team, and they're really the ones that are ultimately going to, you know, uh, make a decision on this front. And I think this uh, this mayor recognized that with all the development um, coming with the wind development and, and, and things that were happening along the Route 99 corridor, that it was, you know, it was really important to, to try to do something quickly. I, I would also credit uh, Jen Schlesinger from my team, uh, who was the project manager for the Everett study. Um, she... You know, and I think this is true of our whole team. We're not the types of planners that just want to come up with a study that goes on the shelf. We want to be as activist as we can in trying to implement the recommendations once once we've once we've finished it. So she very quickly pivoted from finalizing that study to working closely with you know Jay Monty and Everett and and uh, Mayor Di Maria and and um, and yeah, it was great. But we certainly give a lot of credit to the city of Everett for being that progressive. I don't think Everett was traditionally viewed as a city that was as progressive as maybe some of its neighboring municipalities, but they were clearly on this uh, on this tactic, they were out in front of everybody else. So I think a lot of credit goes to them. And if you have it top of mind, what was what was the outcome? Was it a time savings that can be documented along that route? Yeah, there's a there's a time savings that can be documented. I know that we're we're pulling in data. You know, there's there's data from from every every week and month. I don't have I don't have uh, handy uh, with me today. But the interesting thing when we've gone out and and um, surveyed customers is that there's there's the sort of actual time savings. Um, even more important, I think, operationally for the MBTA, there's there's a reliability improvement where we're just the trip time is taking. There's less variability in how long it takes the trip it takes to make the mm-hmm. trip, which helps with scheduling. And then, but I think the the perception of how much time savings there is was was really the interesting mm-hmm. thing. People perceive the time savings to be you know seven eight minutes, which is you know a, a, a little bit more than we're actually saving in that one mile stretch. So I think one of the although having 101 cities and towns in this very small region presents so many headaches, it's also a, a bit of a laboratory where if you can work with one municipality that wants to be really aggressive on, on this type of a project, as example, then you can create a situation where other other cities are then envious and they also want to catch up and have just as good a service. So I think that there's a great opportunity if you can get a foothold somewhere. Yeah, we've, had, we've definitely seen that where we've had conversations with other cities that are saying the same thing. We want to try to explore mm-hmm. whatever it did, do, do some, something similar to whatever it did, and then even just... You know, reading an Universal Hub uh, article this post this morning on on bus improvements in South Boston, you read the comment section, which I try to avoid normally, particularly if it's an article that I'm mentioned in. But uh, you know, all the, a lot of comments about why they, you know we should be you know the city should be exploring doing something like Everett did to improve these routes, and I think that's, that's well. Great. I think it also underscores, and and one of, one of my takeaways also from the experience as being secretary doing the Civil Line Four, 
low-cost, high-impact solutions can sometimes be the most effective, right? And so Everett, uh, I assume, falls under that category. And having that high impact uh, then enables you to, to transport that or import that idea elsewhere. So I think it was a smart thing to do. Everett, the Everett bus line is a good example, um, and I know when I was reading um, reading through some of the slide decks that you, you, you've used in, in kind of the listening tour that you've done with Focus 40, a lot of the mentions of feedback that you got from the community were things like, and you mentioned this earlier, reliability, um, frequency, um, things like that, which aren't necessarily capital intensive, like these things, some capital needs to be spent um, to maybe achieve some of these things, but, but a lot of it is more policy uh, operations and um, interagency cooperation. So I'm wondering if that means that a big chunk of Focus 40 will be focusing the agent agency on that interagency cooperation and making things work um, on the ground rather than just on spending money on, on new um, procurement. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're if if you mean by interagency, you mean sort of coordination between Mass on the T and and uh, cities and towns. I think very very much so. I think that um, you know the the sec you know the secretary secretary Pollock has her talking point that I, I repeat out there as well about you know there being these six or seven elements of good bus service, but the MBTA really only has dominion over two of those. Um, so we 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 can't really elevate the bus mode to a, to a higher level transit mode without working closely with cities and towns. But we think it's absolutely critical that we try to do so because we've got a third of our customers are, are using the bus, and I think it is our lowest cost way to, mm-hmm. to improve service. So Focus 40 will make some clear statements uh, there. It'll be both identifying places where we think it's important that we work with municipalities to, to improve service, but also I think, um, you know, I think you look at whatever it did, and I think They've demonstrated that you can do you can do this that it has a benefit, and I think that uh, you know we still get lots of um, requests for sort of major capital expansion expansion projects, and I think you know we're we're in a position where I think we'd like to see municip- municipalities try the the lower cost solution first. I think the SL four that Secretary Lisi talks about was sort of a way to kind of quickly do something to try to you know ap- approach some of the benefits that this this Silverline Phase three tunnel was intended to do it. Yeah, I think for $1.5 million, we were able to replicate a service that was going to cost $2.1 billion that no one could build because there was no money to do it. So that's my point about sort of low-cost, high-impact. Um, if that mentality continues, it seems like it has, uh, I think it really can be a big success for people. And it sounds like from this whole conversation, we're really hearing about a focus on bus transit. Um, which is, to my way of thinking, the, the, the sort of target for the next wave of city and regional transit investment, to take the bus transit experience and elevate it so that people view it as a really good quality service, not as something that's less than subway or less than light rail. It can be as good, particularly if we start to mimic bus rapid transit. Yeah, and I think it's been great just to just to add to that. I think it's been great to see organizations like the Bar Foundation, for example, which has... Uh, you know, you, we haven't had a lot of sort of influential organizations or, or players in town kind of like speaking up for the bus historically, at least in my time, maybe maybe in the, before I got involved, this happened. But it's been great to have an organization like that really focusing on, on bus improvements. And, and we're certainly doing that internally as well. With so much talk about bus, I had, you know, unless, Jim, unless you have another question after this, I had one more question to ask uh, relative to buses. And, you know, my impression, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, um, I don't know if, if many of the listeners are aware, one of the constraints on having more buses um, has been where do you put them? 
and we have various bus yards uh, throughout the metro area. Nobody wants to have a bus bus uh, yard in their backyard, uh, literally, and uh, you you can only have so many buses if you don't have enough space to keep them and maintain them. Um, and so I've understood that that was a constraint on having more buses, which means you know how much service you can offer. Um, is there been any um, movement on that front of where what we can do? Because and some of these bus yards I know near Forest Hills, for example, there's one that was I think supposed to be temporary. Um, right. The neighborhood wants to get it out of there because now there's a lot of apartments being built there, things like that. Is there been any movement on on this issue? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, in terms of specific new locations, there's there's nothing really to report uh, there at this time, unfortunately. But I think. You know, and, and there's another part of the issue too, which is that in addition to the facilities maybe not having enough space to add uh, to the size of the fleet, I think the condition of a lot of those facilities also inhibits our ability to, to keep the fleet up and running. Which means you're, you maybe lose some capacity that way as well by not being able to to, to being challenged to keep. I think the fleet you mean up. so. So our facilities tend to be the buses are kept outdoors. Mm-hmm. They have to right. be worked on outdoors a lot of times. Yeah, and I think another challenge, it's not just that there's, it's not only that there is a, you know, not a lot of people lining up to invite um, a bus maintenance facility in their neighborhood. I think it's that when you look at almost all of our rail and, and bus storage and maintenance facilities, they're in areas that maybe were the kind of edge of the world, you know, 100 years ago when they were laid out or 50 years ago, these industrial backwaters, almost all of them are very attractive sites for development now. So it's very common to go to a public meeting and see one of our facilities with lots of, you know, either decked over or no longer there with lots of like buildings and renderings uh, there. So there's a lot of interest in redeveloping these sites too, but it's a, it's an issue that we've got to, again, work with, work with the, you know, work with our partners across the region at the, the local level to try to uh, come up with a solution, but it'll be it'll be an issue that'll certainly be highlighted um, through Focus Forty. Well, with that, I just want to thank you for for coming, spending time with us. We'll let you go on your way, but it's been uh, fascinating to have a conversation about Silverline Gateway, which we don't hear much about, and about Focus Forty, which I think has been in the news a lot. But we're getting a little bit more in depth understanding from you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Scott. Sunshine came softly through my.